As we continue our trek through the parts of the Bible that you never remember when you've read them, Exodus chapter 21, starting in verse 33. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and doesn't cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another, so that it dies, <coughs> excuse me, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price. And the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it's known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner's not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it and sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in, and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there should be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or donkey or sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain in the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox or for a donkey, for a sheep or for a cloak or any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it! The case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it's stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beast, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If man borrows anything of his neighbor and is injured or dies, his owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for his, its hiring fee. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to be married and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. 
You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. <clears throat> you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen, with your sheep. Seven days shall be with, it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts of the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. This ends the reading of God's word. I know it's your favorite passage, one that you read when you're feeling discouraged or weary. You turn to Exodus 22 for God's encouraging commands. Actually, all seriousness, it's a great passage. Let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing. Father, we've heard your word. You've spoken to us now. You speak to us in the sermon and we ask that we would hear. Uh, I joke about it, but we see our frailty already. With here, we have words from heaven. And we struggle to find them interesting sometimes. That is not a weakness of your word. That is the weakness of the listener. And so we ask, O oh God, that you would give us, as we have already prayed, ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm kicking the last bit of a cold here. Did you notice the pink stakes out front? Some of you probably did. Some of you actually probably didn't. Maybe you were uh, running a touch late. Not that that ever happens to any of us. Maybe the children in the car were being a bit excited and you didn't notice uh, if you look out front where the lonely tree is uh, or the silly tree, uh, whichever one you like to call it, there are some pink stakes right next to it. Those pink stakes are fantastic. They're exciting because they symbolize something much more important than simply pink stakes. Those little stakes with the pink ribbons are marking out um, really uh, the surveyor's work for when we start moving dirt. We had to have those stakes put in so that we could see kind of general uh, lay of the land so that when the gentlemen show up to start moving dirt in just a couple of weeks or days, I don't know, they'll have a gauge for where everything is supposed to go. 
And, you know, as we've talked about, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that's for this church when a lot of things are going to change, uh, some of which are going to be rather inconvenient. Um, in case you haven't heard, we're moving more or less every molecule of dirt that we own to another place on our property. It's going to create a good bit of chaos and certainly some mud. It's also going to change how we kind of parent our children. We've been very free with letting the kids kind of run around and play, and we're actually not going to be able to do that for a while. And part of that is because we're going to have big equipment on the property that they're not allowed to climb on. Part of it is there's going to be uh, a building uh, pad being put in, eventually, God willing, a building, all of the various things. And it's going to be an opportunity for the children to be hurt. And because of that, we're going to have to be a little bit more careful with how we parent. I mean, we've always been comfortable having an adult out there and letting the kids run around and bleed in the parking lot and have fun and be silly, and that's great. But for the first time, we're actually going to have something really, really dangerous on the property. In fact, actually so dangerous that it's going to have two separate insurance riders covering it. One from the people who bring it and one from the church that's paying for it. Why do you have insurance on things like that? Big, dangerous equipment, very easy for a child to get injured. Why do you have insurance riders for that? Because we live in a litigious society where anytime somebody gets hurt, we have to answer the question, whose fault is it and how much should it cost? And sometimes we get really good answers with that from our court system, and sometimes we get maybe less good answers from our court system. Sometimes we have hot coffee spilled on us in McDonald's and we sue for hundreds of millions of dollars, and sometimes we don't. And you never exactly know which one it's going to be. And so because of that, we as a church are going to have additional rules that we're going to have to follow. Whose fault is it? And who pays? I love those questions. They're not actually bad questions. Uh, In fact, they're actually very common sense questions. And they're the questions that are being answered in Exodus chapter 22. Whose fault is it? And who pays? Now, they're not answering the question of a kid falling off of a, you know, giant earth mover or something of the sort like that. But a question like what happens when my ox gores another ox or what happens when I'm taking care of my neighbor's property while they travel and uh, thieves steal it or I'm watering their plants and maybe forget to one day and all the plants die. What happens with that? But to get Exodus 22, you really need to get, again, a little bit of context to understand the significance of what God is doing. Again, we aren't, many of us, skilled readers. We don't read that often anymore. We read novels and we consume novels very rapidly. We don't read texts and don't pay attention to how the text moves uh, as a whole. And this one is very significant in what God is doing. Remember, he's brought his people to Sinai to reveal himself to them for the first time in in a newer and richer fashion so they would know more of who he is and what is important to them. And he gives them the ten words. We call them the ten commandments. Those are the moral law, the biggies, the things that explain to them who God is. You want to know who God is. Look at the Ten Commandments. It tells you everything you need to know about him at the time until Jesus shows up. 
And immediately he turns from explaining who he is to acknowledging that people are creatures of habit. We act the way so often our parents did. And they acted so often the way their parents did. We're creatures of habit and imitation and mimicry. And he looks says, I understand you think your father is Egypt. And your temptation is going to behave of the way your father has taught you Egypt. And the problem is that's not your father. God says to Israel, I am your father and you are to behave the way that I have told you. Knowing that in chapter 21, one of the big issues they would struggle with is how to interact with people. And he immediately jumps onto the issue of slavery. Addressing how you care for workers in your midst. Remembering in this time, slavery was not a transaction of a person that's actually specifically forbidden in the passage. Man stealing and man selling was punishable by death. Slavery in this era was more of a transaction for labor. Years of labor promised for a certain end. He's telling them, look, you you think your father is Egypt and you're going to be tempted to behave that way. You need to have a better pattern. Chapter 22 takes that idea and begins to reinforce it with a bunch of, again, what we call case law. It's very specific cases, very specific illustrations that are used to teach principles. Many of us did not grow up in educational systems where you did this. Or if you did, you turned your brain off for those days. If you went to law school, you did this all the time. You look at the various cases that are presented in front of you to build a larger idea of what is taking place. We're going to look at really four principles that God is going to lay out in this chapter. Again, remember, this is case law for for Israel. These were the laws that they had to follow as a nation. But they're going to teach us principles that we as a church can implement today. And in fact, actually, we should be implementing. I would say we sin when we don't. First, verses 33 all the way through verse 15, God lays out a pattern for dealing with difficulty. All of these situations, if you probably were paying attention and, and listened, they deal with loss of some kind. I dig a pit. Your ox is wandering in the field. It falls into my pit and hurts itself and dies. What do we do with that? Now, again, we're in a non-agrarian society, so immediately you're thinking, wow, it's the cost of an ox. And it's like, well, no, no. That ox might have been the thing that you were going to use to plow your field and to till the soil. You're not just talking about losing an animal. You're talking about losing all of the labor of that animal. It's an extremely costly thing. Whose fault is it and who pays? And all of these situations, verses 13 through 15, or 33 through 15, lay out one key principle that we're going to highlight. Reason surpasses revenge. Reason surpasses revenge. I mean, it makes sense. Let's say my next door neighbor farmer digs a pit. Maybe my ox falls into it. Maybe I'm mad at him. 
Maybe I was going to go and plow my field the next day and I can't do that now because my ox is dead. Well, without a police force to stop me, what might I do? Well, if I have more sons than he has, or maybe mine are older than his are, maybe I go burn his house to the ground and take all of his animals. Maybe I burn the house to the ground while he's inside. Who's going to stop me? It was his fault that my animal's dead. It's his fault that I can't plant my crops. It's his fault that my family's going to starve to death. Who's to say I can't do that? Well, God says you can't do that. He says, what is going to happen? Well, you, you find the cost of the ox and you pay for it. If you have a situation where one ox kills another ox, you sell the live one, you split the cost of that so that each of you get the share of the money, you take the dead one, you split the meat, each of you gets a share of that. Let's be reasonable. A thief, if he goes and steals an animal, you catch him with the animal, he's just got to pay a fine. But if he doesn't, you catch him after he killed it or whatever, he owes grossly more. It's a very reasonable and well-balanced system. And we read this and we kind of go, well, yeah, duh, thank you. I mean, uh, we live under a police force. We live in the best country in the history of the world. I mean, really, remember this. We live in the most just nation in the history of humanity. There has never been greater justice than the world in which we live in, specifically in these United States of America. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm saying it's the best ever. And so when we read passages like this, we don't think about it because we would go, what do you do? You call the cops. Or you have a court system to be utilized. The world in which this is being written, in fact, actually, the law codes that we do have are by and large this. If he hurts you, go kill him. That's more or less the law code of the day. Those are the ones that we have written. The ones that weren't written, I'm sure, were much, much worse. It was the Wild West, except far worse. And here the Lord is laying out a pattern for his people to say, no, 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 no. Let's be reasonable. Think about it. I love the illustration of the two oxes where one kills the other. You had two oxes that were alive. Now you have one that's dead and the one that's alive. Here's what you do. You sell the living one and split the money. And you take the meat from the dead one and you split that. Each of you gets half the meat. Each of you gets half the money. That is such a good common sense answer. Not about revenge. It's not vindictive. It's not petty. It's not vengeful. It's unbelievably reasonable. Verse 6. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stock grain or standing grain in the fields consume, the one who started the fire shall make full restitution. If you burn down somebody's fields, you pay for it. Wow. So reasonable. The interesting thing, though, is when we read it in this way, and you actually kind of start paying attention to the laws and how reasonable all of them are, it prevents revenge. Yet, when it comes time for us to be the victim, we don't like to follow that. 
Again, think about the last time that you were the victim of something, whatever it was, doesn't matter. Think about how quickly your heart tips toward revenge and pettiness and nastiness, wanting others to suffer instead of being well-reasoned and well-balanced. You say, well, why are you talking about this? Michael, this is kind of a waste of time. You go to the interesting stuff, the latter part of the chapter. Well, because we've talked about this at session, we've talked about it in the church as we continue to grow, that only gives us more opportunities to have our toes stepped on by other saints. The more people we have, the more opportunity you have to get offended and to have to put this into practice. Further, once those lovely pink ribbons out there, uh, the stakes start uh, being surrounded by dirt that's moving and inconveniences increase, we only have greater opportunity to be upset. And it's interesting how God's pattern for his people is to keep a cool head. To not go off the deep end, to not seek the destruction or the vengeance upon another. But for the personal responsibility to kick in. You get to see this in the very ending verses here, the 10 through, uh, really 10 through 15. All of those being about, uh, let's say I'm going on a trip and I need someone to take care of my animals and I entrust them to a person and that person doesn't take care of them well. All of them are case by case examples of who's responsible to fix it. If the person who's taking care of it was negligent, it's their fault. They pay for it. If it's, quote, an act of God, well, it's my loss. It would have happened either way. It is what it is. Being thoughtful about these difficulties and not oriented around revenge. Second principle that we get to see laid out, this is, I would suggest, probably a bit more, um, probably hits a little closer to home, I would guess. After laying out all the case law verses 33 through 15 about uh, revenge and, and how to suffer loss, we get into these really awkward verses that follow. If a man seduces a virgin who's not engaged to be married, lies with her bride price and such and such. You have the sorceress, you have the animal, you have the sacrifices to other gods. I'm going to suggest that all of these frame out a pattern uh, that the Lord is setting for his people that purity surpasses passion. The first one we had reason is more important. It surpasses revenge. Here we have purity surpasses passion. Look at all of the things that are happening here and they're illustrations of somebody getting caught up in the heat of a moment or an idea or a movement of some kind. The first one, a man getting to know a young lady. They're not married. And in the throes of excitement, the throes of passion, they do the thing that unmarried folks are not supposed to do. Well, what's supposed to happen? What do we do? Here you have the pattern is in this day for this uh, specific uh, country, uh, they were to immediately then marry her. And if the father of the bride protested and was like, no, he's a loser, the guy still had to pay. He had to take responsibility for his indiscretion, whether or not there was a pregnancy. 
responsibility. But again, highlighting what's the trump card here? What's the target they're aiming for? It's not encouraging zeal and passion and instead purity at all costs. The verse 18 follows on that with the same idea, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. And this, uh, again, for us today is like, well, why would we? I mean, Harry Potter, I don't understand. That's all pretend what's going on. Uh, this world in which this is written, sorcerer is a very real thing, but it was almost always connected to uh, fertility and connected with the future. It was when you got stuck in a situation where you didn't know what you were supposed to do, where you didn't know how you were supposed to be, uh, you could... Uh, Seek out someone to consult the spirits to give you the future. It almost always uh, was accompanied with other indiscretions, we might say, that would be marked by acts of passion as well. It fits the pattern. Verse 19, again, highlighting the same idea, passion surpassing purity. 20, the same thing. I worship any God I want, any way I want, any how I want. It's up to me. I would suggest these laws are, uh, again, they're for Israel in this specific day, but the principle behind them is a, a reality that is extremely important for us today. I mean, to think about how much our culture is saying the opposite. Purity doesn't matter. Passion does. I mean, for now, I'd say 40 years since I've been a child, I mean, my whole life, the message of our culture is you can be anything you want to be as long as you believe it hard enough, you're passionate about it, and you work hard enough. It's all about promoting passion, promoting zeal, promoting those ridiculous indiscretions. You can even see the way that our culture speaks of love and romance. The way that our culture frames out romance, what is romantic. It's framed out as moments of passion that overtake your thinkings, overtake your mind, that overtake your reason. I I would call that insanity. That's not good reasoning. That's not good romance. That's insanity. It's far more romantic fixing breakfast for the, you know, 3,000th time. Cooking the same set of eggs, listening to them chew with their mouth open the way they do every morning. You see, our culture has fallen prey to this where it's promoting you just letting your emotions go. Follow them. Let them take you wherever they wish. And the Lord's saying, no, no, the pattern for my people is not to to follow your passions. It's to follow purity. Because your passions lie. They don't lead you into good places all of the time. Sometimes they might. Instead, having purity as the target to have purity in our sexuality, to have purity in our spirituality, to have purity in our personality. 
And you see this get picked up in the New Testament. It gets more aggressive. You, you think about how it says it. To hate even the garment that is stained with sin. And none of us really think about that or believe that until we're somebody, around somebody that has a communicable disease. Go hang out with somebody that has a communicable disease. Go, if you ever worked in like the service industry, work with somebody who has TB, work with somebody who has HIV, work with somebody who has something that you can get and can get killed from it. And suddenly you begin to understand hating even the garment stained with sin. Oh, it has their blood on it. I don't think I want to touch that with my bare skin, thank you. I want to be thoughtful and careful and intentional. Purity is to surpass passion. And then finally, these last one, this is an again, intriguing one for how we think about our culture today. Uh, people surpass possessions. All of these final case laws here, uh, it's the Lord laying out that people are more important than property. Property's nice, it's good. The Lord loves private property. He's actually just given us half a chapter on how to take care of private property. But here in these final sections, he's laying out that people are more important than property. Look, when you have a sojourner coming in your midst, and this sojourner is a non-Israelite, non-Jew, who's staying in the land of the Jews, you're not allowed to mistreat him. Even though he's down on his luck, so to speak, even though he's poor, you can't mistreat him even though he has no law to appeal to. You can't take advantage even of the pagans because they're people too. People are far more important than money. This is where the Corinthian church would miss out. Where they start suing everyone, they're suing each other inside the church. Paul's like, it's just better to be defrauded. Just walk away. People are more important than money, particularly the people of God. People surpass possessions in importance. And you say, well, I get that. I understand that. And I say, good, I'm so glad. Wait till you see the building built. Because that's actually where it begins. Rubber hit the road, isn't it? Which matters more to me. The people sitting next to me or my preferences. Which matters more to me, my inconveniences or the people that I'm bonded to through the vows of membership? Which matters more to me that I hate mauve as a color (laughs) or the people that I'm pledged to as family? I said sup for this with the reading in Philippians earlier. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others as better than yourselves. Having in mind the humility of Christ, Christ even who did not consider equality with God something so to be clung to, to be grasped that he would not leave heaven, but instead stepped out of the glories of the triune God and into flesh. Considering us better than himself. It's amazing how these three things, when framed out together, shape a church that everybody wants to be a part of. 
where revenge isn't present. Instead, reason and rationality rule when it comes to dealing with difficulty, where purity is surpassing all sorts of passions, where people are more important than possessions. That is absolutely, unequivocally, the the type of place we want to be. But it's only accomplished through how the chapter ends. You shall not revile God. You shall not delay to offer the fullness of your harvest to him. You shall not delay offering your children to him. You shall not delay anything. You have to have these things anchored underneath the governance of a relationship with God. We talked about this in Sunday school and again setting you up for it. What's the target we're aiming for? A reasonable people, that's a good thing to be. A pure people, that's a good thing to be. A people that love community and love neighbor and love each other, that's a great thing to be. But all of those only exist underneath a knowledge and love of God himself. The presence of the triune God. I would suggest that I think for us certainly all three of these will be tried over the next two years as we go from pink stakes to pretty sanctuary. I would suggest that all three of these things will be tried for us as we grow as a family, as we add more to our members, as the devil seeks to destroy us. I would suggest that we're going to have plenty of opportunities to think about this. Which one am I going to pursue? Am I going to pursue my little petty little vengeance or am I going to be reasonable about it? Am I going to pursue my passions, my wants, my desires, or am I going to think about purity and holiness? Am I going to value my possessions more or am I going to value my people more? And hopefully we'll have the right answers to all of these, but I I would absolutely guarantee that if we don't keep the last one, the big one, that, that God is the head of it all. That the target that we have to aim for is a knowledge of the triune God, a relationship with God. If we miss that, we miss it all. Again, being reminded that church is here, it certainly is here to make your life better. That is absolutely the truth. And church is here to help you understand how you're supposed to live. That's absolutely the truth. But first and foremost, this church exists so that we would know God and be known by him. To be in communion with him, in fellowship with him. And I would certainly hate it for us if we maybe got caught up with the glories of moving dirt and the loveliness of a building that's going to go on top of it at some point. And get so distracted by those lovely things that we kind of forget to be in communion with a God who made us, with a God who has sustained us, with a God who has redeemed us in Christ, the God who has filled us with His Spirit, the God who is preparing us for the life to come where that new building won't be, but we will. May it be that for all of us, we labor today even to set that target, thinking about knowing and being known by the triune God in Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for difficult passages. 
Thank you for passages that are written different ways, that we have simple promises that we may cling to. We have difficult case law that makes us think. Thank you for the way that this can indeed stimulate humility within us as we struggle to wrestle through it. Thank you. Oh God, may we know you. May we be consumed with communion with you. And may we live in a holy way accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.